last week, and um, and I gave y'all three or four things. I, I said three things, but there was a fourth thing that I just didn't get to last week. But I gave y'all three or four things what Laodicea was known for, and then uh, today we're gonna start in Revelation. But you know, but it's important for us, like I mentioned last week, that we go through the background of the city and, and understand the text and understand why Jesus was speaking to them in the language that he was speaking to them. So I talked about, just a refresher that, I talked about how they were known for the black wool, black raven wool, and their wealth, that they were very wealthy out of all the seven churches, they were the most wealthiest, all right, and uh, to their wealth was because of that black raven wool that they were sewing to tunics and things like that, they were able to sell at a costly price. And then also I talked about the medical school, but beyond the medical school, that freeing power that would mix with water became the eye salve that they would put on their eyes, which they intended to be healing, and uh, also they would use it for the ears. Those are three to four things that they were known for. But the fourth thing that they were also known for that we didn't get into last week was uh, they basically had a poor water supply. Right? So they had what was called uh, an aqueduct. And this aqueduct, remember I talked about how they were a tri-city area and there was a nearby city named Heropolis. And in Heropolis, Heropolis has uh, some hot springs, and we'll talk a little bit about that later on as the Lord sees. But uh, Heropolis was known for some uh, the hot water springs. And what they would do with this aqueduct, and it's actually pretty amazing, if you even research it, you'll see pictures of the pipes that travel from Heropolis all the way to Laodicea, which is about 6 miles, 6.1 miles, roughly around there. But it would start out in the hot springs and it would go all the way to Laodicea, but by the time it got to Laodicea, guess what? It was no longer hot. It, it became lukewarm, right? The water became lukewarm, so now when we see lukewarm, we know why Jesus is speaking lukewarm to them, right? Because it's not fresh like the water in Heropolis, but now, it, and I could imagine, they, we have to understand, they didn't have the filter systems that we have today. Right? So not only was it lukewarm, so while they could bathe, it wasn't good to drink. Right? And then it probably had some grime and some stuff in there as well. Alright, so let's go to Revelation chapter 3. And uh, we'll begin at verse 14. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the lay of these sins, write these things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So let's stop right there. So just that first sentence, well, first verse, but right at the uh, comma, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, right? This, he introduced, when he tells John to write, he actually, he's actually saying something different than compared to the other churches. And the other churches that he, when he addresses them, he's saying to the church in Thyatira to the church in Sardis, to the church in Smyrna. And then with Ephesus, he just said, he does say the church of Ephesus. But this time, Jesus is saying to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Remember when I talked about last week how Laodicean meant rule of the people, right? So it, it was, a, they basically had a democracy of the church. So what the Lord's probably saying here, the church of the Laodiceans, meaning you are the church of the people, not necessarily the church of me. You're representing the people, not necessarily me. Right, so he says, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So we're familiar with the word amen, right? <laughs> it's a common word. It pretty much sounds the same in almost all every language, right? So, 
you know, we've probably been taught that amen means so be it, which it does. But what Jesus is saying here, he's saying amen is actually means the truth. The truth, faithful, surety. So basically, he's introducing himself as the truth. So basically, if Laodicea is thinking that, if the church is thinking that they're rich, and Jesus is saying it's poor, well, who's speaking the truth? Jesus. It's easy for us to say Jesus, right? Because we know the back end. But private to them, if they're invested, if they're invested in their wealth, then they may argue with Jesus a little bit, right? So, but what we have to understand with that word "amen," meaning truthful, is this. See, sometimes we're quick as Christians to put to say "amen" a lot of times when someone's speaking or someone gives words of wisdom, right? But we have to be careful of that because when we're saying "amen," we're actually saying truth, right? So, if they're not, so what do we know is truth? The Word of God. Right? So, it's not about Rasan's opinion. So, Rasan gives an opinion about something. We don't have to say necessarily amen about it. Right? Because if I'm speaking a word, that's different. Right? But we, we, we. So, I notice even just coming across this in the last couple of weeks now, I'm trying to be more cognizant of when I say amen and why I'm saying amen and not just say amen, just say amen. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a little tongue twisted. <laughs> it wasn't meant to be. But uh, I guess I got it out. But, uh, you know, so it's important that we understand what amen is and, and what Jesus is saying in here. Okay? So, let's go to verse 15 and 16. I know your works. Very familiar with what he said to the other churches. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. Verse 16. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So, I talked about last week how this is the harshest rebuke out of all the seven churches. And really, this is the harshest rebuke for any church in the New Testament that's written, because this is obviously coming from Jesus, right? So, the reason why it's the harshest because he's saying, I am going to vomit you. I am going to spit you out of my mouth. I'm going to spew, depending on the translation that you may have, right? So, we have to understand, when they see lukewarmness here, they immediately know what Jesus means, just like I talked about the water supply. So if someone was coming to visit uh, Laodicea and they drink that water, they're going to spit it out. It's nasty. So what Jesus is saying, just as you would not, that, just like you would not drink that disgusting water, I would not have you in my mouth because you're disgusting. Your behavior, your walk, your belief, where, you, where your belief is at. And we'll get to why. Uh, how they ended up getting to this uh, this point, right? And we know it's money, but it's ultimately a root of something else, right? So now, this hot and cold has two different meanings. With my research, I came up with two different meanings. One I'm pretty sure we're familiar with, and uh, I'll give you the first one first because this is what I normally had uh, ascribed to. So I'll give you, like I said, it's two. So the first one is this. Obviously, hot being on fire for God, right? So he's saying I would rather... you. I'd rather you be, you neither cold nor hot. So either you're hot and you're on fire for God, or you're cold and you're not. Right? There should be, so lukewarmness means tepid. It means in between. It means stagnant, just standing still. So we can, we can get to lukewarm in different ways, right? We can mix cold and hot together and still be lukewarm, right? We can be, as Christians or as churches, we can be hot one week and cold the next week and be alternating. And then guess what? We're neither one. Now we start to be lukewarm. And we start to become like the religious leaders in Jesus' day. Right? Because who was cold when Jesus walked? We had uh, the uh, the publicans, the tax collectors, 
the harlots, the prostitutes, right? They were cold, so they recognized their need for Jesus. They recognized their need to be made whole. But the religious leaders, they didn't want anything to do with Jesus, right? But they were more so lukewarm, believe it or not, right? So an example of lukewarm, and another example is this. Remember you had the two thieves on the cross next to Jesus, right? You had one that was cold but ended up repenting. He recognized his need for Jesus, right? And then now you had the disciple whom Jesus loved down looking at John. John was always hot for Jesus, right? So when John, when we read the Gospel of John, we read about love, right? Because he was hot. Now, there was another disciple who was lukewarm, Judas, right? Judas was lukewarm. Judas followed Christ naturally but didn't follow him in his heart. We have to remember, and, and this is this is what well, it's important for today. Judas did what? When he sent the twelve out in Matthew chapter ten, Judas raised the dead. Judas healed those that were sick. Judas still preached the word, and guess what? Judas now is eternally separated. Mm -hmm. And then Jesus said Judas was a thief from the beginning. Right? So we can't get never get caught up in the gifts because there's a perfect example of a disciple who walked with Jesus, who was one of the twelve. And was close with Jesus, ate with Jesus, watched Jesus perform miracles, and still is eternally separated from the Lord to this day. Why? Because he loved, he gave his love for money more so than Jesus. Right? He sold Jesus out. And it was all a part of God's plan. <laughs> it was all a part of God's plan. But see, what the devil meant for evil, God turned it to good. But nevertheless, Judas was still lukewarm in that aspect. So that, that's one meaning. The other meaning is this. So remember when I talked about how, again, Tri-City. So you had Heropolis that was hot, had the hot water, right? So on the other side, you had Colossae, because I talked about that. Colossae was about 10 miles. Colossae was known for their cold water, right? So the hot water in, in Heropolis, people used it for medical purposes. It was almost like a, a whirlpool, right? So they would get in there help uh, soothe the body, and then the cold water was used, what? When you drink it, it was refreshing to them. So Jesus is saying, look, if you're hot, guess what? I can use you to heal people, through, right? But, and, and if you're cold, guess what? I can use you to bring a refreshing to people. But if you're lukewarm, I've got no use to you for you, right? So those are, those are the two meanings right there, right? So now... He says here that I will vomit you out of my mouth. I will spew you out of my mouth. So how does Jesus, how are we in Jesus' mouth today? Right? Romans 8.34 says what? He's on the right hand of the Father interceding for each and every one of us. Right? He's on the right hand of the Father interceding for every believer out there. Right? But if he vomits us out of his mouth, guess what? He's no longer interceding. That's right. Right? So now you may have lukewarm Christians they're being told and they're thinking that Jesus is interceding for them, but instead he's vomiting out of his mouth, so he's not interceding for them. Mm. So think about that next time you, you think about somebody being lukewarm, right? Because there's no intercession there because their name is not even in his mouth. All right, verse 17. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. 
So, ultimately, what the Church of the Laodiceans did, they put their trust in natural resources. They put their trust in the money, their wealth, more than Jesus, right? So, ultimately, what does that revert to? They also had trouble with pride. It was ultimately pride, right? So, this definition of pride, one definition of pride from the Greek, a self-boasting confidence. A self-boasting confidence. And we have to be careful of that. So even though we as Christians, we may not be wealthy like the Laodicean was. Because remember, when I said when you think of Laodicea, think of Beverly Hills. Right? We may not be wealthy like that. But we can still find ourselves in pride because you don't necessarily have to be rich to be caught in pride. And we can all be susceptible to that. So we have to all be on guard about that. right? And, and pride is a dangerous sin because we can be caught in pride and not even realize it. Right? So I talked about being self-boasting. In other words, a form of pride would be this. When we as Christians, we may say, well, God does this with me, or I'm different because the Spirit protects me from this or that. Right? So now we start to make ourselves a little bit better. And we've got to be careful of that because that is a form of pride. False humility is a form of pride as well. So another Greek meaning for pride is being high-minded, to inflate with self-conceit. High-minded, to inflate with self-conceit. And see, even during the prosperity movement, that's what the church was teaching. Get, get money, or money coming to me now, all these other things that, you know, is it as bad as it was maybe four or five years ago? Probably not. But church is still talking about that, right? I know one local church here, well, it's in Chesterfield. <laughs> We're in Colonial Heights, Chesterfield, right? And I have because a friend of mine, uh, posted somewhere about their New Year's Eve. Every testimony was about somebody giving and money. Everything reverted back to money. They talked about the money and the wealth more so than Jesus Christ. They, you know, they'll bring Jesus Christ on the end, God bless me, but it's about the, the money, the promotion, and things like that. But that's putting your trust in materialistic things. And we have to be on guard about that. And, and we, we have to be guard, guarded against that spirit of pride because really that's what Satan was. He's caught up in pride. See, pride keeps us from being honest with ourselves, keeps us from being honest with God, and keeps us from being honest with other people. And pride will get us to see other people's problems and shortcomings and not our own. That's right? Right. So I think it was last week where I talked about how we can read the Word or hear taught message that, oh, that's not me, that's brother, sister, so-and-so. But that's pride. See, what the Laodiceans didn't do is, because we got to remember they got letters. They, they had letters. So they had the same letters that the other seven churches had. They, uh, you know, they also had Paul's letter. Because Paul said, look, I read it last week. I think it was uh, Colossians chapter 4. He, he read and he said, make sure this letter from Colossians goes to Laodicea because that's how I tied it in the two with the mysticism and the Gnosticism. And he also said that make sure the letter to Laodicea is sent to the Colossians. Because what I didn't mention was last week was Colossi, the city of Colossae was also wealthy because they had the black wool, uh, raven wool as well. So they were wealthy. But what happened was Rome eventually built a road that took the traders away from going to Colossae. So uh, Colossae was never as wealthy as Laodicea. But at one time, so again, and they were so close, Colossae and Laodicea, and probably Heropolis as well, they were dealing with the same thing. Wealth, pride, mysticism, Gnosticism. All these things that Paul was warning about and Jesus is here is warning about. 
And to think, you know, we, we had the movements of Christians, how we should all be rich, how we should all be millionaires. And then the same thing with the spiritual movement as well. Those, those are two popular movements in the church today. And these are the things that Jesus was warning us about in the Bible. But yet, we, I'm saying we as the church as a whole, we've been blinded to that. Because why? We're not in the Word. We're not in the Word. See, what happens is, and you've heard me said it before, we get into just picking one or two verses out. Right? But there's this thing called expository preaching. Right? When you get taught that in seminary or Bible college, you're breaking down the meaning of the text and what the writer was saying to the audience. This is why I'm giving you also the historical aspect of this so now you understand the background. See, it's one thing when you have somebody up there that up here that doesn't teach that often, right? I wouldn't expect them to know that, right? But a minister or somebody that's up here consistently, they should know that. Learn the, learn the audience, right? And, and that, that's how you break down the text. So Jesus was speaking their language again. So he was saying, he looked at their spiritual condition and said, you're wretched. Then he looked again and said, you're miserable. Miserable describes someone looking for pity. The third time, Jesus looked and said, you're poor. He looked again and said, you're blind. A final time, Jesus looked and he saw that they were spiritually, spiritually naked. Right? The city of Laodicea, I talked about it, was famous for its wealth. But the Christians of the city were spiritually wretched, miserable, and poor. They were famous for his healing I saw. But the Christians of the city were spiritually blind. Laodicea was famous for his fine clothing. But the Christians of the city were spiritually naked. These are all things Jesus is saying to them. Right? Alright, verse 18. Yeah, I didn't think I was going to on. Alright, verse 18. 18 through 20. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. Verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. So the point of Jesus, what he's trying to make to them is to be genuine. Don't be fake. It wasn't the fact that Laodicea was spiritually poor or blind. It was the fact that they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. And see, we as today as Christians, we can, we can be blind to some things in our own lives. Right? We could be caught in pride, and we cannot see it. So we have to be careful, even when we're going to people and saying things to people, how are we living? What are we showing the people? Because the greatest witness we can have is, number one, the Word of God. <laughs> right? Amen. Number two is our lifestyle. Amen. It's our lifestyle. 1 Peter 1, 7 says this, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So faith and love are the true riches a Christian should demonstrate in our, in our lives. Right? So let's turn to uh, Psalms 19. 
things in Revelation that come from the Old Testament. Revelation, I'm sorry, Psalm, Psalm 19, Marine 7 through 11. Psalms 19, beginning at verse 7, read 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yeah, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So going back, he talks about, he says here, the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The statutes of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean and the judgments of the Lord are true. So basically what Jesus was trying to say to the call, uh, to, to Laodicea, he was trying to call them back to him, which is the word of God, right? Which is the word of God, right? Because the law, testimony, the statutes, commandments, the fear of the Lord, judgment, that's all the word of God, right? They have gotten so far away from the Lord because they were walking in the natural in their flesh that they actually got away from the Lord. Right? So, Jesus may have been coming out of their mouths, but Jesus wasn't in their heart. Amen. What was in their heart was their wealth, their riches, right? Their houses, right? And ultimately, pride. Pride. But the good part of it is this. In verse 19, Jesus says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So if Jesus didn't care about them, he would have never sent a letter to them. Right? So he was actually calling them back, trying to get them to see, because they went off the track. But he loved them enough to rebuke them. Right? And then some of the other churches, he loved them enough to rebuke them. See, it is unbiblical for us to think as Christians today that we won't be chasing or rebuked by the Lord. See, we think it's a bad thing, but it's really a good thing. Right, so what 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 does chasing mean? Right? In, in verse 19, chasing means to it actually means this in the Greek. To train children, to cause one to learn, educate, discipline. And I'll use another word for it. Instead of chasing, how about conviction? Right? Because what happens as Christians today, and we, we do something wrong, and the Lord comes in and he convicts us, right? That's that cutting that takes place. So we have a choice to either heed to it or not heed to it, right? And then eventually if we continue not to heed to it, then what? Now we're in danger of becoming lukewarm to the point where he goes silent. So chasing by the Lord isn't to scold us and leave us, but it's to help us learn and to mature. Right? That's what this word, and see, even when I talked about the New Testament, that's, what it, that, that's the purpose of the letters. To get the believers, the Christians, to mature. Right? We, we should not be walking around as infants, always needing milk, always needing to be babied all the time. 
right? Because if we need to be baby, then guess what? Then we're going to shut the Lord out when he comes to chasing us. So the word rebuke means, it actually means to convict. Zealous means to be fervent, to be hot, to desire earnestly. So he's telling them, therefore, be zealous, be hot for me, be fervent for me. Proverbs uh, 3, let's turn there. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. We're almost done. Yes, that's the good part about breaking it up into two. One, one week's going to be short, the other week will be long. Proverbs chapter 11, verse I'm mean, sorry, 3, Proverbs 3, chapter 3, thank you. Verse 11 and 12. All right. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as the father, the son, in whom he delights. So that word despise means to reject, to refuse. So he's saying, look, my son, my daughter, do not refuse, do not reject my, my, my correction, right? Because so now, even when that conviction comes in, again, we have a choice. We can take it, and we can change, or we can reject it. What he's saying here in Proverbs, do not reject it, do not refuse it, nor detest it. To detest means to loathe or to hate, because guess what? That conviction is not a good feeling. So we can do one, one, one or two things. Like I said, we can reject it or we can accept it. But sometimes Christians will be like, no, they're going to hide it. They're going to hide it. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. So that word love there means it's a family type of love. Just like a parent to a child. Just like we discipline our children to do what? To bring correction. That's what the Lord was doing with the church of the ladies he was trying to bring correction. Same thing he'll do to us today. He's going to try to bring correction. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he chastens and scourges. Every son whom he receives, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? 
For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our prophet, meaning the Lord, for our, our prophet, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful nevertheless. Afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Alright, so let's go back up to the beginning. So, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. So in other words, speaking to you as sons, that word sons there is, is the Greek word huos. You'll probably heard me say that back at the house, but it means a mature son. See, so when the Lord brings correction to us, right, he may bring correction to us through the Holy Spirit, but he may also bring correction to us through our brother and sister in Christ. Amen. And we have to be mature about that. That's what he's saying here, mature son. That's what that uh, heroes means, right? All right? And then uh, going on, uh, my son, do not despise the chastening. That word despise means care little for. So in other words, don't ignore it. The chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged, meaning relaxed or exhausted. So in other words, don't give up on it when you are rebuked by him. So when he talks about illegitimate and not sons, he's talking about illegal. So if we refuse to hear the correction from the Lord, right, or correction from another brother and sister in Christ, and then correcting us from the word, then are we truly his sons or daughters being mature, or do we become illegitimate? And then... I don't know about you, but I don't want to be illegitimate. <laughs> right? That's that that's not good. Right? But again, he wants our walks to be mature. And understand, being immature doesn't matter. Doesn't mean, doesn't, doesn't mean just because you've been saved for 15, 20, 30 years that you're a mature Christian. No. You could be a mature Christian after being saved for one year. It's just how you carry yourself. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, he with me. Now, we've heard this, this verse through evangelistic uh, terms, even probably with Billy Graham, right? Believe it or not, when we use this for that verse for trying to uh, get people to come up for salvation, we're taking it out of context. Because who's he talking to? He's talking to the church, right? So, this is a call for those who are lukewarm to come back to him to be on fire for him. Right? So, this is not a call for those who are lost and unsaved. And this is a scripture that is used in that aspect, but it's not for that. Because what we fail to realize is, we think because someone confesses Christ, goes to church all the time, that all of a sudden, that they're good. Because we have a lot of, quote-unquote, Christians attending churches, and they're on their way to hell. And don't even realize it. So he's saying, look, to his, to his children, he's saying, look, I'm knocking. I bring correction, I'm knocking. So you open the door, come and dine with me. In other words, come back into fellowship with me. Because that's what that dine means in the Middle East. You come in, you, you invite a house guest. That was an ultimate sign of respect. You write them in the house and you have a meal. You share a meal with them. That's what the Lord is saying here. He's saying, look, come to me, dine, fellowship with me. And see, if we're on, if we have that zeal and we repent it, now we're going to be on fire for him. And we don't mind fellowshipping with him. 
We don't mind dining with him. And guess what? This is a daily walk. It's a, it's a daily battle. So verse 21 says, To him who overcomes, that word overcomes means to conquer, to subdue. To him who conquers and subdues, I will grant to, to sit with me on my throne, as I, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So overcoming this battle, it's a daily battle. Right? So why? Because we're battling with our flesh constantly. Right? And again, we're battling with that spirit of pride as well. So this is not something that, hey, we do every once in a while. No. This is something when I even talked about with, uh, in Galatians 5 with the, with the uh, flesh, crucifying the flesh. We got to hammer the stakes down. We got to hammer the stakes down because this is a daily walk. Yeah. Now, again, the more we do it, if we're on fire for him, the easier it becomes. But if we start to start to drift, we take a day off here, day off here. Now we start to be in danger of possibly having a lukewarm relationship with the Lord, and that's not what He wants. So understand this: doesn't mean we're going to be perfect because as long as we're in His bodies, guess what? We have not arrived. We have not arrived. We're going to make mistakes, right? But again, that's where the chastening comes in. That's when that conviction comes in. And we're either going to heed it or our pride will rise up. <laughs> and we're going to ignore it. And we have to be on guard about that. Because, see, that's what he was trying to warn the lady these things about. Out of all the churches, they were, they, they were in the worst shape. Because they were in the middle ground. They were neither hot nor cold. They were in the middle. They were tepid. They were standing still, not going anywhere. And we don't want to be like that. We want to constantly be moving forward. Right? But if the Lord says go left, we want to go left. If he says go right, we want to go right. And see, we've all experienced the chasing of the Lord. If you experienced any form of conviction, you experienced the chasing of the Lord. And, and that's what we have to have our hearts open up to. Right? And we can't, we can't be caught up in pride thinking... Oh, we're this, we're that, we're, we're, we're super spiritual, we're never going to make a mistake. No, we're going we're gonna to make mistakes. <laughs> All right? we, we, we are going to make mistakes. And, you know, there's times where we are going to have to humble ourselves. And there's times where the Lord is going to humble us. Amen. Right? And it, it doesn't mean that, hey, he's condemning us to hell. No. Because when he brings that conviction, that means, guess what? He's warning us. That's his children. He's, he's warning us. Hey, come back. Come back. Repent. Be on fire for me. And come start fellowshipping with me. Amen. 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 So, I'll stop. Well, let me read these real quick. Uh, quick. Going back to Revelation. The white garments. Buy for me white garments that you may be clothed. So the black wool was a major layer decent export using a spiritual comparison. John's message says that Jesus turns black cloth into white outfits, representing the righteousness of Christ. And the eye saw, anoint your eyes with eye saw that you may see. This, um, I talked about how uh, they were known for medical schools, medical school and um, freaking powder. For the church, the spiritual eye saw is understanding and applying biblical truth. It clears up self-deception and restores spiritual vision. Amen. 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 So let's bow like this. Thank you.